Good morning. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. And uh, I just want to begin by saying a big thank you uh, to our church, to our pastors, uh, and to everyone in here who has uh, given, prayed uh, for my wife and myself, my family, um, for this upcoming trip to China and also for the Christmas offering. Uh, we are truly very thankful um, for you and humbled by, by your love. So the first thing I want to do this morning is just present a little bit about uh, our upcoming trip to China, uh, what we're planning on doing and hope to accomplish. And um, as I was preparing for this, just sort of thinking about where we've been, where the Lord has brought us, and it's hard to believe that it's been 15 years since my first trip to China in 2004. Uh, John Carolina is with you guys, and Woody, Chris, Bridging the World, um, it's been 11 years since you sent me to China to study the language in 2008. Um, it's been five years since I uh, married my precious wife in 2014 in China. Um, four years since I graduated from expositors. And then these past few years have just been um, spending my time here at the church, learning uh, hands-on pastoral ministry, observing the elders, and, uh, and, and teaching um, weekly in a Sunday school class. In other words, um, you all have invested much in me um, and in my family and in China. And so I just want to begin by saying thank you. And, um, and ultimately, it's been the Lord who has been um, directing us, providing for us, and preparing us for um, this next step. And through the oversight of the elders, we think that it is time to begin thinking about launching into this next stage um, and looking to full-time ministry in China. And our desire is um, not just to go and, and, and jump in doing something uh, by ourselves. I'm still young, uh, still have a lot to learn. So our desire is to find and, and partner up with healthy ministries that are already going on in China. Um, find uh, ministries with the same theology, same philosophy of ministry um, as ours. And we've already made several contacts, and the purpose of this trip is to meet those contacts and to learn a little bit more about their, their ministries and then see whether or not there's a place for us to serve. And then, Lord willing, um, in the next year or so, um, launch uh, to China uh, for full-time ministry. So I just want to give you a quick look at our basic plan um, for this trip, what we'll be doing. And I can't share too much information just for um, security purposes, so... If you'd like to know more information, I'd love to share with you some more in, in person later. Uh, but the dates of our trip are February, January 2nd to February 2nd. We have a clicker here. There we go. And our first uh, stop will be in Beijing. We arrive there on January 3rd, and we'll stay there just long enough to get over jet lag and head out to Shanghai on Sunday morning of the 5th. That's where we go next. Uh, let's see here. Let's see. Is it there? Shanghai? Yep. So we'll be in Shanghai, you can see, uh, from the 5th to the 8th, three days. And while we're there, we're going to meet with a man named Mark. Um, he's been in Shanghai for over 10 years doing church planting, um, pastoral training. Um, it's a, a really awesome ministry that's going on there. So we're going to meet with him, just learn about his work, what's going on. Also, while we are there in Shanghai, some of you may remember Nora and Kevin, uh, two former Chinese students. Uh, they uh, stayed with us in our home. David and Linda hosted them for a time 
at the Godwin House, and uh, we're going to try to meet up with them. And as far as we know, they're, they're not believers. They're in Shanghai, and uh, so we're praying for gospel opportunities with them while we are there. After Shanghai, we, we go to a nearby city with her family for Chinese New Year. As you know, Chinese New Year is a big holiday, just like Christmas is here, and we haven't uh, been there for that for a long time. So it will be a good, uh, refreshing time with family. Finally, after um, that, we head back up to Beijing on the 30th of, of December, and we'll spend time with another man named Mark, um, who's there. And he's been there likewise over 10 years in China. And his work includes uh, translation of Christian materials into Chinese and also uh, pastoral training and, um, and mentorship. Um, and then, uh, Lord willing, we'll be back to the States on February 2nd. So that's a whirlwind tour of where we'll be and what we'll be doing. Um, here's a few prayer requests that we have to be praying for. First, we ask for prayer for profitable meeting um, with contacts. Um, pray that we would learn about these ministries with accuracy. Um, pray that we'd be able to consider which would and would not be fitting for us and that the Lord would open and close doors um, for um, the right and the wrong ones. Second, we ask for prayer for gospel opportunities. Like I said, we'll be, Lord willing, meeting with Kevin and Nora. And then um, while we spend time with Maymay's family, she has a number of unbelievers in, in her family as well. So pray for gospel opportunities. Third, we ask for prayer for safety and security. You know, right now in China, it's not um, the ideal time for missions. And at the same time, it makes it a very ideal time for, for missions. Um, there's a lot of pressure um, from the Chinese government. Um, a lot of uh, Western missionaries are being uh, kicked out, which means there's a greater need for new ones to, to come. So pray for uninterrupted visits while we are there, that we would remain unnoticed by the authorities. Number four, we just ask for prayer for the Chinese church in general and, and spread of the gospel through China. Pray for these ministries. Uh, pray that men would be trained, churches established, and the gospel go forth. Um, I have uh, itineraries here. I've learned from Woody, always hand out maps and itineraries. So if you would like one, um, come up to me after the service and I will uh, get one to you. Well, this morning, the pastors have asked me not only to uh, share about our upcoming trip to China, but also to bring uh, the word to you. And I am very privileged and uh, kind of a great responsibility to do so. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, if you're not already there. John, chapter 3. Probably asking why John 3. The first reason I've chosen it is because I'm currently teaching through the Gospel of John in the Koinonia Sunday School class, and we've just finished working through this section. Uh, so Koinonia members, this will be review. Um, but I've also chosen this text because it is very fitting for this particular Sunday, which falls between Christmas and New Year. John 3, as you're most likely aware of, is Christ's teaching about the new birth. And this topic of the new birth points us back to what we have just celebrated at Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. But why did Jesus become a man? Well, it was to die on the cross, right? 
but it was also to bring about the realities of the new birth through his cross. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, that's Christmas, that's what we celebrate. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So what are the works of the devil? The works of the devil is a life that practices sin. And how would he destroy it? Listen to verse 9. No one born from God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born from God. That's why the Son of God has appeared, to destroy the works of the devil, to deliver us from a life of enslavement to sin by the new birth. And we sing about this at Christmas time too, don't we? Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them what? Second birth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. This topic of the new birth not only points us back to Christmas, it also points us forward to what we will celebrate in the new year. The new year is a time that people like to think of new beginnings. People like to think of how they can change and fix up their life for the better in the coming year. People make New Year's resolutions, which normally don't last past the month of January. But the new birth is a true new beginning. It's not surface level like most of the resolutions people make. And it's not short-lived either. It has impact and changes our life to eternity. And so New Year is a perfect time to reflect on these truths about the new birth. And so before we dive in, I just want to lay out my goals for this message. I obviously won't be able to say everything there is to say about the new birth. But I'm going to try to at least hit the high points and make some application for our lives. My first goal is that I know there are some in here who have not experienced this thing called the new birth. So it's my prayer that through the word, that God would cause you to be born again. That the eyes of your heart would be open to the glories of Christ and you would believe. Second, I know that I'm speaking mainly to believers this morning, those who have experienced the new birth. And so my desire is that we would all together come to know with a little bit more clarity what all has happened to us. When we're first saved, we don't know all that's happened to us. We just know we're sinners and we need, we need Jesus. And part of growth in the Christian life is coming to know more and more what is actually happened to me? What all has gone into my conversion and my salvation? My desire is that you would be astonished afresh by the massive grace of God shown to you and that we would rest in more confidence in Christ. Third, just about every one of us in here has someone we know that is lost and that needs to be born again. And so I want to help us think through some implications that these truths about the new birth has on these lost loved ones that, that we have and we, and we know, and how we should share the gospel in light of these truths. Well, this morning, I want to give you three 
three essential truths about the new birth. Three essential truths about the new birth. The first essential truth is that the new birth is the creation of a transformed nature. The new birth is the creation of a transformed nature. The new birth is not the turning over of a new leaf. It's not simply cleaning up one's life. It's not dressing up a dead corpse. The new birth is the creation of new life in the soul of a person. It's the transformation of the fundamental character of an individual. And it is essential if we are to go to heaven. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But before we consider just what the new birth is, I want to think a little bit about why we need it so badly. This passage, John 3, verses 1 to 15, is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, who is a case in point example of the natural condition of mankind and why all of us must experience the new birth. The first thing we learn in this passage is that the natural condition of mankind is beyond human repair. Natural condition of mankind is beyond human repair. Who is Nicodemus? Well, verse 1 gives us quite an impressive list of credentials. Look what it says. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. So first of all, who is Nicodemus? Well, he was a, a, a Jew. He was a member of the covenant people of God, a descendant of Abraham. But more than that, he was a, a Pharisee. Well, who are the Pharisees? When we hear Pharisee, we think bad, but that's not what the Jews would have heard. They would have heard a sect within Judaism which emphasized meticulous observance of the law. They're careful to obey the law, so much so that they developed this whole system of this oral tradition to explain how to apply the law. They had a high reverence for God's Word. They had good doctrine for the most part. They believed in the resurrection from the dead and the inspiration of Scripture. But he wasn't just any old Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel. And beyond all this, he was even willing to affirm some pretty good things about Jesus. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, if anyone's getting into the kingdom, it's surely this guy. Right? But it's to this one that Jesus speaks, verses 3 and verse 5. Unless you are born again, you're not getting into the kingdom. This had to have been absolutely shocking to Nicodemus. What, what do you mean? Of course I am. I mean... Look, I'm not just a Pharisee, I'm a ruler of the Jews. I keep the law. And Jesus says, no, you, you will not. Well, why? Why not? What's wrong? It's because our condition is beyond human repair. You see, despite all of Nicodemus' credentials, he still had two massive problems. He had a soul that was defiled by the guilt of sin, and enslaved to the power of sin. He lacked a heart that was cleansed and a heart that was actually able to obey God on the heart level. 
Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say there? He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter in the kingdom of heaven. And Pastor Farrell has told us over and over again, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to apply God's law to our hearts and show us how utterly, miserably we failed to keep it and to drive us to the mercy of God. But the Pharisees didn't see their, their, their need for this. They, they did a pretty good job at keeping the law as far as they were concerned. But the Sermon on the Mount also teaches us that those who enter the kingdom are not only forgiven, but they possess a transformed heart which actually does keep God's law on the heart level. And the Pharisees didn't do that either. In other words, those who enter the kingdom are those who recognize their heart level sins like lust and anger are just as worthy of judgment as the surface level sins like murder and adultery. And they run to God for mercy. And those who enter the kingdom are those who, having now been forgiven, now actually make war on their lust and on their anger and desire to keep God's law from the heart. And since Nicodemus was a Pharisee, it's probably safe to assume he wasn't too concerned about either of these things. He felt that his religion, his Jewish rituals of purification, his meticulous observance of rules would do the trick. He supposed he could clean up his life on his own. See, those who are in need of the new birth are not only the, the blatantly immoral out there, although they need it. Those who need the new birth are also religious people. They might even be Christians. But they're just like Nicodemus. They minimize sin, don't see much need for repentance and grace, not too concerned about holiness in their hearts. They don't love the things of God. They just have religion. And this passage is here to tell us that it is not enough. Listen to Jesus' assessment of humanity later in John, verse 31. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You see, you don't become a slave by committing sin. Rather, you commit sin because you're already enslaved. Your sin improves the condition of your heart. Chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will, literally your desire, is to do your father's desires. It's a pretty bleak view of, of humanity. And no amount of religion in this world, no clever techniques, no church attendance, no Bible reading can deal with these two most fundamental problems. We are defiled. Our sin, we're guilty, and we are enslaved and dominated by our sin. And therefore, according to John 3.36, we are under the wrath of God. And so Jesus declares to Nicodemus and to us, the desperate need of mankind is to experience new life in Christ. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
In verse 2, Nicodemus is willing to affirm the supernatural about Jesus. But Jesus says that isn't enough. One must experience the supernatural in his life. Nicodemus and we must move beyond the signs that Christ performs to embracing the life that those signs pointed to. You must be born again. Because only the new birth addresses these two fundamental problems that we have. So the question you're probably asking is, okay, well, what does it mean to be born again? Well, here in verse 3, that this word born again, it can be translated either as again, meaning a second time, or from above. And it probably means both. Nicodemus hears Jesus say this, and he only hears the first meaning, meaning a second time. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus say, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus here isn't merely talking about a second birth. Even if Nicodemus somehow could get back into his mother's womb and be rebirthed, it wouldn't do any good, right? Because the flesh can only produce flesh. His fundamental nature would not have changed. Rather, when Jesus said, unless one is born again, he primarily means we need to experience a birth of a different kind. A birth from another realm, from another source. New life from God. And so in verse 5, Jesus clarifies. Look at verse 5. It's parallel to verse 3. He unpacks it a little bit. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be born from above? Well, it means to be born from water and spirit. You say, well, Michael, that doesn't help very much. What does that mean? Um, and uh, we don't have time to go through all the possible interpretations out there, but I think the meaning is actually quite clear. And the best clue we have is that Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand what he was talking about. Because Nicodemus was a teacher of what? A teacher of the Old Testament. And so we should look to the Old Testament to try to figure out what Jesus means here by water and spirit. And these two terms, water and spirit, appear together in several places, but the clearest is probably Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. You can turn there if you like. I'll have it on the, the screen. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 28. This passage promises Israel that following the exile, God would do something to them. Something that they and every person in the world desperately needs. See, it wouldn't be enough to simply return Israel from exile back into the land. They had a root issue. They had a fundamental problem. If that wasn't fixed, they'll just perpetually go into exile. But God here promises this new covenant, which he's going to fix this fundamental problem with Israel and with every one of us. The first is found in verse 24 through 25 where we're promised a total spiritual cleansing from sin and guilt. Let's read it, 24 through 25. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean 
from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. This would be much different than any ritual purification the Jews had ever done. This would be a cleansing that would affect the heart and create true acceptance, true purity before God. Listen to a parallel passage here in Jeremiah 33. God says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. In other words, we carry about in us a record. A record of guilt and defilement from sin and are unacceptable to God and ourselves. We need a washing, God is telling us, a washing that only God could perform. And this is what Jesus means by born from water. You must experience a new life that is characterized by total cleansing, total forgiveness of sin and the removal of guilt. But second, Ezekiel not only promised total cleansing from sin, but promised a decisive transformation of our nature by the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, he doesn't just deal with our guilt problem and leave us in our rebellion. That would be like declaring the leper clean and leaving him in his disease. You can give a pig a bath, but it will just return to wallow in the mud. The nature of the pig needs to be changed. That is exactly what God promises here. We need not only to be forgiven, but we need new hearts. Hearts in which God's law are not simply an external standard which we have to obey, but new hearts in which God's laws are written. Hearts which actually desire to obey God. We need the transformation of hearts from stone, hard, impenetrable, cold towards the things of God to a heart of flesh, warm and feeling and alive toward God. And this doesn't mean sin's perfection. What do we mean here by this new heart? We don't mean that you don't sin anymore. You still sin. You still have sinful desires. Every believer in this room knows that. But 1 John tells us that an evidence of the new birth is a new opposition towards sin. There's actually a war now. There was never a war before. It's continual confession of sin. It's new desires for righteousness. A love for the things that God loves and for the people of of God. Well, how would this happen? Ezekiel tells us that it would be through the indwelling Spirit who will transform our hearts. And so, this is what I think Jesus means by born from water and Spirit. It means to receive new life from God, which is characterized by complete forgiveness of sins in a transformed heart, mind, will, emotions, by the Holy Spirit. And John will tell us over and over 
and over again that this life is found where? In the Son. In Christ. These realities of the new birth are provided by Christ. Jesus can remove your guilt because He is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And He could transform your heart because He is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, what John the Baptist declared. And both of these are accomplished at the cross. And this new life provided by Christ, John will tell us over and over again, is received by faith. That's exactly where John ends in verses 14 through 15. But before we get there, we have another problem. We have another problem which Jesus addresses in verses 7 to 8. So go back to John 3, verses 7 to 8. And this is our second essential truth about the new birth. The new birth is caused by the life-giving Spirit. It's caused by the life-giving Spirit. So we've just seen what the new birth is and why we need it so badly. But now Jesus takes us one step further. Our condition of spiritual darkness and deadness not only makes us guilty and enslaved, but this condition of ours also blinds us to Christ and makes faith in Him, which is the only way to receive this life, impossible. You see, dead people don't believe. Blind people do not and cannot see. And Nicodemus is a case in point of this very thing. He responds to Jesus' words about the new birth with opposition each time. Verse 4, verse 9, these things cannot be so. In other words, part of our condition includes an inability to receive Jesus' words. An inability for man to produce spiritual life on his own. Listen again to John chapter 8, Jesus' words, verse 43. Jesus has been speaking very similar truth that he's been preaching to Nicodemus here, to the crowds in chapter 8. And he says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you are not able to hear my word. Well, why? You are of your father, the devil. And he would go on to say, and your desire is to do your father's desires. In other words, we have an end of inability that comes from desires. People loved the darkness rather than the light. And the Gospel of John is shot through with this theme of man's inability. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness literally has not grasped it. It has not received it. It couldn't understand and obey and receive it. Have you ever shined a flashlight into the sky on a really dark, clear night? What happens to the light? Where does it go? It just sort of disappears, right? It doesn't land on on anything. That's the picture that's given to us here. We are, by nature... Darkness, the light shining for sure in Christ. But those in darkness are not able to grasp it. Our spiritual deadness includes a blindness to Christ, an inability to receive by faith the life that He offers. 
So what hope do we have? Well, look at verses 7 through 8. Jesus gives the answer. He goes right after exposing this inability and revealing what must happen if we are to have any hope. Verse 7. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or from above. The first thing to notice here is that Jesus is not giving Nicodemus a command. He's not saying, okay, Nicodemus, go now and produce the new birth. This is a passive verb. You must be born again. In other words, the new birth is something that happens to us. We experience it, but it is not ultimately caused by us. Yes, it's experienced by faith, but but the question is, where did that faith come from? Right? Spiritually dead people are no more able to make themselves alive than dead Lazarus raised himself from the dead. People born of flesh are no more able to produce a spiritual birth than a newborn baby caused himself to be born. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't cause the new birth. It's an absolute necessity. It must be experienced if we would enter the kingdom, and yet it's totally out of our control to make happen. We are dead. So what hope do we have? We'll look at verse 8. tells us that the new birth includes not only this birth from water and spirit, verse 5, but it also is the result of the activity of the Holy Spirit who creates spiritual life. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus here compares how the wind blows with how the Spirit works in the new birth. He says this is how it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's like the wind. Well, how so? Well, in two ways. He says that the new birth is the result of the Spirit's working of His own free will. The Spirit, the wind, blows wherever it desires. Chapter 6, 63 says that it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And all on whom He blows, He gives life. And anyone that lives and experiences life, why do they do so? It's because the Spirit blew on them and granted them life. Which leads to our next Point. The new birth is experienced, but it cannot be controlled or predicted by individuals. Jesus says, you hear it sound. You feel it blowing. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. The wind is mysterious. With all of our modern technology, we still cannot understand it completely. It seems to have a will of its own. We experience its effects, but that is, is all. We have no ability to predict it or control it. If you doubt me, just turn the weather channel on and see how good they do at that. And Jesus says that the same is true of the new birth. We cannot make the new birth happen in our lives or in the lives of others. We simply experience the powerful effects of the life-giving Spirit. 
But the question remains, how does He give life? What does this mean that the Spirit gives life? I mean, we emphasize in the first point that new life is found in Christ, right? Christ is the source of life. And we access that by, by faith. So what's the role of the Holy Spirit here? And I think the answer that John would give us through the Gospel of John is that the Spirit gives us life by connecting us to Christ by faith. The Spirit gives life by producing faith and repentance in our hearts. Faith comes from beholding the glory of Christ in the Gospel of John. Seeing Jesus in the work that He accomplished as worthy of all of my trust and as displaying the very character of God. We're naturally blind to that. But the Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, He will glorify Me. The Spirit loves to open eyes to the glory of Christ. He gives life by opening blind eyes, by enabling to see us to see Jesus as He truly is, and granting us faith to believe. So the point we're making is that the new birth not only includes this, this new life that comes from Christ, water and spirit, transformation of our souls, but it also includes the awakening of the soul by the Holy Spirit to behold Christ as infinitely precious and to trust Him. It is a miracle. And we're going to, I'm sure you have questions about that. How does this, how does this work and Questions about, he, he blows of his own, own will, and we're going to come back to that at the end and make some, some applications. But first, we need to get the full picture, which leads us to our third essential truth. That's the new birth is experienced by faith in Christ. We only have time this morning to look at verses 14 through 15. And so far we've learned that the new birth is the creation of life in the soul of man. It's characterized by complete purification from guilt and a transformation of the heart. And the new birth includes the life-giving Spirit who enables us to see, behold, and embrace Christ. Now, this point tells us explicitly that the new life we need in Christ through His cross work is experienced by faith. Faith is the receiving of the life that Christ offers to be our own. Just as lungs breathe in the oxygen of life by breathing. Our faith is the result of the Spirit's work, and our faith is the essential means whereby we receive this life to ourselves. There is no new life. There is no regeneration where there is no Faith. So let's look at verses 14 through, through 15. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. There are a couple things we can pull out here. The first is that Christ is the source of this new eternal life. John will tell us in other places that he who has the Son has what? Has 
life. In Him was life. And this life was made a possibility through His cross. Verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. It was in the uplifting of the Son of God on the cross and in the resurrection that Jesus fully satisfied the Father's wrath and secured all the promises of the new covenant that we read about. Much like the uplifted metal snake in the wilderness, you'll remember, was the means whereby Israel received physical life. Jesus tells us that in the same way and in a greater way, the uplifting of the Son of God is the means whereby we receive eternal life. This life He's been teaching about. Total cleansing from sin and a a new heart. But beyond this, there's another parallel to the serpent in the wilderness. This life is experienced and received by a dependent look of faith. The people of Israel were healed by simply looking at the metal snake. The looking, the idea of that word is not just a casual passing glance, but a steady, dependent gaze. God has provided this, and this is my only hope of salvation. The snake represented God's provision, and when people looked at it, they were acknowledging their guilt. They were acknowledging they don't have any other hope than in that, and they looked and looked and looked, depending on God's promise. And Jesus says, in the same way, eternal life was not only accomplished through the cross, but it is received to be one's own by the look of faith. So what is faith? For many years, I struggled with doubts of my salvation. And the primary problem was that my faith was directed toward the strength and the intensity of my own faith. But as long as my faith is in my faith, or in a prayer that I pray, there will be no peace. And it wasn't until I learned that faith is a looking outside of myself. A dependence upon Christ and what He accomplished. That I came to know His his grace. Faith is nothing more than an expectation that Christ will do for me what He promised. Faith comes having nothing but guilt. And it depends on Jesus alone to provide what I desperately need. Faith is the mouth that eats. It's the hand that takes. It's the lungs that breathe in the air. Eternal life. I have a passage written by Charles Spurgeon hanging on the wall of my office. My family knows when I'm talking about they framed it for me. It was very helpful um, early on in in learning these truths. And it's reminded me over and over again um, just what faith is and, and of my daily task of looking to Christ. And so I just want to share it with you this morning. I think it fits so well in several ways. And I think you will you will hear it. This is what Spurgeon says. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. Right there is John 3. It's the Holy Spirit's job. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. 
For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ, so as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep an eye simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercessions be fresh upon thy mind. When thou wakest in the morning, look to him. And when thou liest down at night, look to him. Oh, let not thy hopes or fears come between thee and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail thee. That is what our passage is calling us to. The provision of life is in Christ, uplifted on the cross. And how do I get it? It's not by having strong faith. It's by connecting myself to Christ. By faith, as a branch is connected to a life-giving vine. It's in this steady gaze of dependent faith alone. All that I need is in Christ, cleansing from sin, water, and a transformed spirit and heart. It's not given to those who can clean up life on their own. It's not given to those who aren't so bad. It's given to those who have fully despaired of any hope in themselves and look away from themselves to depend wholly on Christ and His finished work. The uplifted serpent in the wilderness wasn't for the good. Who is it for? It's for those infected with the consequences of their sin and looked outside of themselves and had no other hope than in God's provision. So those are three essential truths about the new birth. So we have a little bit of time left. And and so in closing, I just want to take now all this information and draw out a few implications for our own lives. I told you we would come back to this at the end. First thing I want to tell you is that believers... These truths about the new birth ought to bring massive comfort to your heart. If you are trusting in the finished work of Christ, you are totally cleansed from sin and totally freed from the dominion of the sin by the Spirit. Not because your faith is strong, 
but simply because your faith connects you to Jesus. Everyone who looks to Jesus has present tense. Yeah, you will have eternal life, but it says you have eternal life now and all the realities that it includes. And these truths should bring great comfort to your hearts because they teach us that our faith is ultimately the result of the Spirit's life-giving work in your heart. In other words, if you recognize your desperate condition, if you see the sufficiency of what Christ has accomplished, if you're depending on Him for your life, my friends, where did that come from? The natural person does not do that. It's massive evidence that the Spirit has already done a life-giving work in your heart. So rejoice, believer. Be comforted and keep your eye on Christ. Second, these truths about the new birth and the work of the Spirit freely and sovereignly blowing on whichever dead corpses He he pleases, giving life and faith in the Son, ought to cause us to magnify the grace of God shown to us. Yes, I believe. Yes, I exercised my will. I made a choice, but why did I do that? And not my brother or my uncle or that friend I've shared the gospel with. Paul tells us, you were dead, but God made you alive. By grace, you have been saved. God, through the Spirit, caused you to be born again. Granting faith, repentance, sight of Christ as infinitely compelling and worthy of all my trust and love. Dead people don't do that. Third, these truths about the new birth give us much hope and much encouragement for the lost people in our lives. These truths should not be abused. They should not cause us to be casual about prayer and evangelism. Just the opposite. They should move us to much prayer because if God doesn't do this, then there is no hope. And they should move us to much prayer because God does do this. The Spirit does open eyes. And they should move us to bold gospel proclamation because it is through the gospel that the Spirit works. We said that the Spirit loves to glorify Christ. And it is in the gospel, the crucifixion and the resurrection, that the glory of Christ is put at maximum exposure. But the Spirit doesn't open eyes when there's nothing to see. He opens eyes when glory is put on display in the gospel. So no, I can't make people to be born again. And we all know the helpless feeling this is. You preach the gospel, you share Christ with someone you love, and there's just deadness. There's no life, there's no care, there's no interest, no concern for their own soul, no desire for the things of God. We're powerless to change it. But there is good news. Because God does and can do it. He does it freely and sovereignly through His Spirit who works through our feeble, stuttering attempts to share the Gospel. And He loves to do it. So be encouraged. Pray and share the Gospel because God does do these things. Fourth, the new birth, these truths call us all people to look away from self and to cling to Jesus as their only hope. 
If you're in here and you have not experienced the new birth, what we're talking about, then what do you do? Perhaps you've never recognized the depths of your guilt before a holy God. Perhaps you think you're not so bad. Perhaps sin is not that big of a deal to you. Oh, you may come to church all right, but it's it's not what you love. There's no confession of, of sin in your life, no dependence on Christ for cleansing, and certainly no war against sin. So what do you do? Well, first I would say that if you feel the weight of your guilt, that's a really good sign that the Spirit is working in your life. But then what do you do? The answer is not to sit around and wait for the Spirit to zap you somehow and, all, and, and you just wake up someday and you're, and you're saved. You're a believer. It's not how the Spirit works. What do you do? The call is to look to Jesus. The call is to turn your eyes, fill your life with the Gospel. Look to Christ as suffering, as a perfect substitute in your place and cast yourself on Him. Look away from yourself. Humble yourself. And cling to Jesus as your only hope. And if you do that, guess what? <laughs> Spirit, does that work in your life? Number five. While it's true that the new birth begins at a decisive point in our lives, we're to live in light of it the rest of our lives. It's not something we do once and then move on to better things. We are daily in need of cleansing from sin. And we are daily in need of the power of the Spirit in our lives. And this comes to us as we look to Jesus. Do you want the Spirit powerfully at work to your, in your life? Look to Christ. Do a continual cleansing from sin. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We live in light of the new birth every day, just as I live in light of my physical birth. Every day. We continue our Christian life the same way we began, by looking unto Jesus. Abide in my love, Jesus said, and you will bear much fruit. So the three essential truths of the new birth and how they should change our life. It's a miracle. and God is very, very gracious to sinners. Let me pray.